The following message was given by Rick Gamash at the 2018 Worship God Conference held in Frisco, Texas. Will you turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21? I'm going to read the entire chapter and then some in just a moment, but uh, I, I love this conference. Thank you, Bob, for the honor of being here. And I just say ditto to everything John said in his honoring Last night, when I, when I get invited here, I just, uh, I'm going to go, and I'm going to go for the whole conference if possible, and I'm going to bring my wife, um, because we just received so much, and we have received so much this week. With the lights on, and you guys addressing us in, in spiritual songs and hymns, and, and it, it's been glorious. We came a little more depleted than usual, and uh, between you guys and the preaching, we just feel full so that we can go back and continue to pour out our lives for the sake of God's church. And, uh, and si- since you're going to do more um, Worship God conferences, like has been suggested, and we did Worship God Texas in July, I'm thinking in order to bring balance to the force, we should have Worship God Minnesota in January. Yeah. <laughs> well, our minds and hearts are full. Our bodies are tired, but you're hanging in there. Thanks for staying for this last session. Now, just to get the machinery of our, our minds moving and oil flowing to the gears or wherever oil needs to flow to, um, let me ask this question. What are you looking forward to? What comes immediately to mind when I ask that question. I have all kinds of things come to my mind. Some immediate things, some distant things. I'm looking forward to the next couple weeks because I'm on vacation, so I'm going to enjoy some downtime in my family. I'm looking forward to a week from Monday when I'm going to see Jack White in concert with a couple of my sons. Can you imagine my sons are letting their dad go? Actually, I got the tickets, and I'm letting them (laughs) go with me to see Jack White. I'm looking forward to going back to England in October for Worship God UK. I can't wait. Our our church, like Bob said, just moved into our own 24-7 outpost for ministry, and I can't wait to see what the Lord has for us in this next chapter of our life together. Looking forward to grandchildren. My oldest got married last October, and I think a year is long enough to wait, so come October, (laughs) I'm going to start putting some pressure on. I look forward, Lord willing, to growing older and hopefully wiser and deeper in love with my wife, Delane. What are you looking forward to? I mean, what does it mean to look forward to something? It means that that something occupies our thoughts, right? But even more than that, it's the subject of our longings, our desire. And so we prepare for it and we we orient our life, our very self, on that thing that we look forward to. So now you know some of the priorities of my life, but what's the point? Here's the point. What I'm about to read in Revelation 21 into chapter 22, an unspeakably glorious section of sacred scripture, what I'm about to read is God setting before us what he intends for us to look forward to ultimately. 
What we have in Revelation 21 ought to be desire number one in our lives. It ought to be what we look forward to most of all. It ought to be what occupies our thoughts, what we orient our lives on, what we prepare for. That's why this description of the church's future is recorded here for us. So I'm going to read a lot of Bible. So why don't we stand up for the reading of the word and Adam actually sang some of these verses for us last night, and it was glorious. I'm going to read them. I think they're going to be on the screen here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of that city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper. The second was sapphire. 
the third was agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Well, Father, I am very aware of my need right now to be empowered to preach your word. And we know you love to do that. So together with confidence, we ask, empower your word now to accomplish all that you intend for it to accomplish. You have fed us so well this week. But here we are again this morning because we're hungry for more. And with you, there's always more. And we know that it's your delight to nourish us and to satisfy us with the bread of your word. And we need it. We need the bread of your word. We can't live without it. With Moses, we say it is our very life. But there's a crust on the bread, and we can't break through it. And so you send your Holy Spirit to break the crust and feed us the, the soft, sweet bread of your word. What we have in these verses is a feast for our minds and our imagination and our hearts. We can hardly take it in. It all seems almost too good to be true, except it is true. So feed us with the glory that's here. Lord, wake us up to the wonder. I confess I'm not equal to the task. I, I can't preach a sermon that adequately unfolds the truths contained here. But it's not up to me. It's up to you. And you are the almighty God of the universe, and you are our Father. So let this living and active word do what it does. Save us, sanctify us, empower us, strengthen us, encourage us, transform us, give us more faith, more hope, more love. We ask that all for the good and the joy of your people, your church, your bride, your city, and for your 
eternal honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You be seated. Now think about this with me. If we place our longings and desires on the glorious future that we just read about, it takes off some serious pressure that we tend to put on ourselves and on other things and on other people. Nothing in this world can completely and totally satisfy us. And if we approach anything or anyone with the expectation that it will ultimately satisfy us, it will crumble under the pressure. I love my wife. I mean, she is a remarkable woman. For over two decades, going on three, she's endured me. She's raised five wonderful children. She's beautiful from the inside out. There is no one on this planet I enjoy more yet. If I place the pressure on our relationship to bring me ultimate satisfaction, I will crush our marriage. It's the placement of undue expectation for fulfillment on the things of this age that leave us empty and feeling depressed and grumpy and complainy. Every good thing that we look forward to, that we desire, that we long for, that we crave, and it's not wrong to crave what is good. God made us that way. But every good thing we look forward to in this life is merely a faint echo of what we ought to ultimately look forward to in the world to come. Only what we have before us in Revelation 21 and 22 can bear the weight of our expectations. Only this glory can bear the weight of our souls. Only this glory can ultimately satisfy. Only putting the weight here can we be free to enjoy the wonders of this world appropriately. Pressure's off. C.S. Lewis said it this way in Mere Christianity. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And we were made for another world. We were made for the world described in these verses from Revelation. And from the beginning, it's what we were made for. God created the world out of nothing. And he made man and woman, Adam and Eve, together, male and female, his image bearers. And he placed them in a land prepared for them, a garden called Eden, paradise, where they lived out the perfect marriage, worked without toil, where they walked with God in the cool of the day, perfect fellowship with God, the way it was supposed to be. It's what God wanted for his people, but it didn't last. The serpent came, the devil, Satan, the old dragon, and he tempted Adam and Eve, and they disobeyed God. And when sin entered the world through them, in response, our holy God cursed them, and he cursed the world. That sin set our world in bondage to decay. Everything now wears down. Like one of my favorite theologians, Bob Dylan, says, 
everything is broken. All distress, disease, and disaster, and all corruption, and all groaning is God's response to Adam's rebellion and ours. All the devastation of the world is a statement by the judge of all the earth that sin is horrific. God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden and he placed an angel with a flaming sword on guard at the entrance so that Adam and Eve would not re-enter and eat of the tree of life and so live forever in their sinful state. Sin entered the world and it's like a wall rose up. And, and the wall is high, and it's wide, it's long, it's unbreakable, it's impenetrable. And it divides the world as it is now, cursed from the world God intends it to be. Revelation 21 and 22. But ever since that wall went up, God has been on a mission to get his people back to the garden. Back into fellowship with him. He never left his people. He called out Abraham. Made a nation called Israel. Promised them land. And then he called Moses. Who led his people on a four decade journey to the edge of the promised land. God was with them the entire time. The God who is everywhere at all times dwelt in a unique way in a tent called the tabernacle that traveled with this nomadic people and was always set up in the center of camp. And eventually, they received that little strip of land in the Middle East, and they built a permanent temple, and God dwelt there in a particular way, in a place called the Holy of Holies. But it was never ultimately about that physical strip of land. That promised land was a window. It was a pointer to the promised land of Revelation 21 and 22. And so, God came to earth. John 1.14, the word Jesus became flesh. God became a man and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. Jesus came to deal with that cursed wall. He died to pay the penalty for our sins, sins of all his people, all the way back to Adam and Eve, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead, and when Jesus rose from the dead, he overcame sin and Satan and death. And I think about it like this. When Jesus rose from the dead, it's like he made a fist, and he punched a great big hole in that giant wall, separating the world as it is from the world as it should be. And so now, we can look through the hole via Revelation 21 and 22 and other places in the Bible and look forward to what's there, the church's glorious future, with full confidence that it will come to pass because... When Jesus punched that wall, it set cracks all through it. So now it's unstable. And all that has to happen is for Jesus to come back, which he's going to do, and place one mighty foot on this planet, and that wall will crumble completely. As I was preparing, I remembered a brief but powerful 
scene from The Return of the King by J.R.R. Tolkien. Frodo and Sam, the two hero hobbits, are in the horrible land of Mordor. They just escaped the orc tower of Kirithungal. Rations are low. Water is gone. And Mount Doom, where they have to get to, in, to destroy that evil ring, is still way out in the distance. Sam is on watch. Frodo is sleeping. And all of a sudden, the dark clouds of Mordor part for a moment. And Sam gets a glimpse of a single white twinkling star. And Tolkien writes this. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. We live in the forsaken land. It's a cursed, groaning world. I mean, just read the rest of the book of Revelation. God's people are not immune from the effects of the curse. The book of Revelation is filled with suffering and persecution and martyrdom. Right, The holy city is trampled. The two witnesses are slaughtered. The beast and the dragon and darkness and locusts and scorpions and agony, judgments had to come. It's everywhere. There's earthquakes, crumbling mountains. There's the wrath of the lamb. There's Armageddon. There's birds feeding on flesh. There's blood as high as a horse's bridle. There's the wicked squished like grapes in the wine press and then thrown in the lake of fire. Those are powerful symbols and word pictures and images that get across what literal language cannot accomplish. Sometimes we need poetry instead of prose to really hear the world groan. But in chapter 21, the clouds part and the star shines. And Jesus is taking us up to the hole that he punched this morning. And he's saying to us, go ahead, look in. Let the beauty of what you see smite your heart. And know that the shadows of this world are a passing thing. There is light and beauty and glory forever that the shadow cannot reach. That's what Jesus says to us this morning. And brothers and sisters, we have to look. We have to look. And we have to look hard until this is what we look forward to. Until we really believe that this is reality. That this is where it's all heading. That this is the church's future. That this is our blessed hope. Because if we see, if we see it, if we long for this, if we orient our lives to this, if we prepare for this, we will be, and this is the whole point of the book of Revelation, we'll be strengthened to endure, to endure suffering, and persecution, and trials, will be bolstered to overcome, to be conquerors, to overcome sin and temptation and complacency and worldliness, and will be empowered to shine as a church with the light of gospel truth. So what is this? What is this reality? Well, this is verses 5 and 6 of our text. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, 
I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is all things made new. All things, everything new. Not in terms of time, but in terms of quality. All things renewed. And it's the one on the throne who makes this declaration. If you've read the book of Revelation, you know the throne is predominant in the book. It's mentioned 38 times because that's where the absolutely sovereign God of the universe sits and wields the scepter of the universe. If he declares it, it will be. That's why he says, write this down. It's for sure. In fact... It's so sure that I will make all things new that I'm going to say it like this. It is already done. Past tense. It's so sure that God will make all things new. He speaks as if all things have already been made new. Now, why can he do that? How can he do that? Well, because Jesus' death and resurrection punched a hole in the wall and made it unstable so that it will come down. And just in case we don't get it yet, he says, I'm the Alpha, first letter, Greek alphabet. I'm the Omega, last letter, Greek alphabet. He's the, he is the beginning. Everything has its origin. Everything originated in him. And everything will somehow end with him. That is to say, all of history will find its consummation in him. And he is making all things new. Now, like I said... All things new is all things. But let's break that down a bit and, and draw it out a little here. We're going to consider three things that, according to this text, will be made new. So we're going to consider the church made new. We're going to consider creation made new. And then finally, fellowship made new. And I, I just, like I prayed, I just need to let you know, I hardly have words to explain what's in these verses. And these symbols point to realities that we can hardly comprehend this side of the wall, let alone explain. So I'm just going to do my best to point some things out. But, and, and you know this, I mean, we just cannot expect that one sermon on all things made new will make us ready. Looking forward to the wall coming down. Our hope in what's to come. Our longing for the church's future. And so empowered to endure and overcome and shine. My prayer has been and is that by God's grace we'll leave today with more hope. More assurance. More expectation. More anticipation. More oriented on and earnestly preparing for what's to come. But we have to keep returning here over and over and over. All things made new must be a regular meditation of our heart. You now know the name Richard Baxter because the book was handed out. He was a pastor in England in the 16th century, and he was so sickly. I mean, what people endured in those days. He had migraines. He had digestive diseases, plural, kidney stones. He had a cancerous tumor on his neck that actually miraculously disappeared once while he was preaching. When he was 21, he said that he could not remember a pain-free hour. 
When he was 35, he fell ill. He thought it was the end. And while bedridden, he began a habit that he continued the rest of his life. And he ended up living until he was 76. He meditated on heaven. He thought about heaven for a half an hour every day. And then he started writing down his thoughts. And they became that book, The Saints Everlasting Rest, unabridged. It's 672 pages. That's my copy. And Baxter exhorts us like this. Keep close to this reviving fire and see if your affections will not be warm. So let's get close to the reviving fire and first consider the church made new. You made new, Christian. Me made new. Us together as God's people made new. I mean, wouldn't you agree that the worst thing about this world is that we still sin. I mean, as Christians, we're saved from our sin. Jesus died to pay the penalty for it. His death also canceled the power of sin, so we're not ultimately controlled by it. That's what it means to be the church. But we still sin. Jesus is still beautifying his bride. We still have spots and wrinkles, Ephesians 5, 27. But Jesus is building his church, Matthew 16, 18, which brings an image to my mind. When, when Delane and I were in London a couple years ago, I was stunned by all the scaffolding surrounding the old buildings. I mean, it wrecks the view. I remember saying to her, we should buy stock in a British scaffolding company. I, it, it was everywhere. I mean... It, we in this teenage country of ours, just we, we, we don't even understand how old some of these buildings are. I mean, the, the Tower of London, when we were there, was just completely surrounded by scaffolding. It's no wonder the first buildings were built in the 11th century. So some remodeling is necessary. The church is like that now. We're surrounded by the scaffolding. It doesn't always look so great. But Jesus is there on that scaffolding. He's building us. He's working to root out all sin. He's making us beautiful like him. But one day, one day that scaffolding will come down and the full glory of what Jesus accomplished for his church will be seen by all. There will be complete spiritual and moral renewal. This is what will make the church so beautiful. This is what will make us a worthy bride for Jesus. I mean, we're actually described in verse 2 as a bride city. You see that? And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I mean, welcome to apocalyptic literature. The, the renewed church is a city in a wedding dress. And every bride looks beautiful in her wedding dress. Now, why a bride city? Well, I think the mixing of metaphors makes the point that the, the individuals that make up the church, we are all citizens of God's city. In fact, we are the city. The city is not the buildings, it's not the roads, it's not the layouts. The city is the people. This is the consummation of Christ's kingdom on earth. And we are his loyal subjects. But... Jesus does not merely relate to us as a king to his subjects. He relates to us as a husband to his beloved bride. 
And so we are a city in a wedding dress. And we will be beautified when that wall comes down. That's our future. Look at verses 9 through 11. An angel takes John up on a mountain to get a better view, the bride city, and we are so morally pure that we actually radiate the glory of God himself. We are a perfected image of our holy God. We're like a jewel, clear and pure. In fact, all, all those jewels mentioned beginning in verse 18 in the foundation, the walls, the gates, it's also dazzling. Even, even the streets that we will trod with our glorified and perfected feet are made of pure gold. But it's transparent gold. What's that? Gold's not transparent. These are symbols that point to a beautiful reality that we can barely imagine. And I think we're just meant to let our imaginations go wild. I mean, John is... He's straining the limits of language trying to describe the moral beauty of the church made new. It is the beauty of perfect holiness. Verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those written in the Lamb's book of life are the church. And the church is in the city. In fact, the church is the city, but nothing unclean or detestable or false is in the city, which means we will be purged of all sin. And because there's no sin in us, there are no more effects of sin in the city. At the end of verse 1, we read, and the sea was no more. Some of you are like, wait a minute. I like the ocean. No beaches on the other side of the wall? That's not literal. Remember, this is apocalyptic literature. And in apocalyptic literature, the sea is a place of danger and chaos. It's where the beast of Revelation was summoned from. He came out of the sea. No sea means no effects of sin. And verse 4 spells it out for us. No tears. No death, no pain, no sorrow, no stillbirths, no miscarriages, no traffic accidents, no suicides, no terrorist bombs, no loneliness, no racism, no anxiety, no panic attacks, no inexplicable darkness, no cancer cells, no overdue bills. No Parkinson's disease, no heart attacks, no chronic headache, no head injuries, no hearing aids, no phone calls in the middle of the night, no wayward children, no broken relationships, no divorce, no infidelity, no lies, no slander, no disappointment, no computer crashes, no crying yourself to sleep at night. What we ought to be as God's church, we will one day be. That's our future. What will that be like? We don't know. I mean, we have never experienced this for even one moment. Because what this is, is our full capacity for life realized. Unhindered by sinful and physical limitation. I don't know what it'll be like, but I can't wait to find out. That's the church made new. 
and all creation will be made new. Back in Revelation 20, verse 11, we're told that when Jesus returns, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Love that image. In, in the sight of Christ's glory, this cursed world is laid bare. It can't take it. This is the wall crumbling. And the only way John um, can describe it is to personify the heavens and the earth, and we watch them flee. And they flee to make room for something new. Verse 1 of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, this is not just a polishing job on what's already here. This is a complete rehab of all of creation, of this world where we will live forever. And you got that, right? The, the city comes down to earth. We will live forever in our physical, perfected, glorified bodies, made morally and spiritually pure on an earth made new under a heaven made new. We're not going to spend eternity as spirits floating on clouds with harps and halos. We will be living a physical life on a physical planet in spiritual and moral perfection forever. And the Apostle Paul, he he talks about it like this in Romans chapter 8. I preached on Romans chapter 8. A few months later, I started a long series through the book of Revelation. And I'm convinced Romans chapter 8 is the book of Revelation in one chapter without the human-faced, iron-clad locust as big as a horse. So it is the book of Revelation without the apocalyptic symbols. Listen to verses 19 and 20. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's the church made new. All of creation is awaiting the church made new. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's God's curse because of sin. But he did it in hope in hope of the coming renewal, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So first, we're made new, gloriously new, and then creation is set free from the effects of sin and made new. What this means is is that God will change the entire universe into a place that's fit for his son's bride, the church. I mean, you remember, our glory, which we already saw, is the glory of God himself. That glory will be so great that only a new heaven and a new earth, only a universe made completely new will be adequate to suit us. It's astounding. I mean, think of it. This world is amazing right now. The universe is astounding, and it's under a curse. And if you watch Planet Earth, Blue Earth, one and two, I don't think the producers intended it, but they inspire me to worship the God who created it all. And he is the God who will recreate it all and make it even better. Creation made new. And that's not even the best thing. I save the best for last. Our fellowship 
will be made new. Now, I could talk about our fellowship to one another. Our fellowship with one another will be made new. I mean, imagine this. All relationships perfect because we will all be spiritually and morally perfect. No sin messing everything up. I, that's, that's glorious. I read in Acts this morning in my devotions, the separation of Paul and Barnabas. I'm so glad that's in the Bible. These people have left my church. I've left angry, and I don't even understand why they're angry. But the only way I know to deal with it is to think, you know what? Jesus is coming back, and that relationship is going to be perfect forever. Now, that's worth thinking about and spending some time on, but I'm going to focus here on our fellowship with God. Because here's the best news about that wall coming down. It's verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That ought to thrill us. I mean, this is the central and primary reality of the new heavens and the new earth. God with us, giving himself to us, his presence everywhere affecting everything. That's the church's future. All those measurements we read in Verses 15 through 17 a while ago, I, when I read that, we were thinking, what is that all about? You know what it's about? It's about God's presence. I mean, the city's huge, right, which, which speaks to the immensity and profundity of God's purposes that are realized when the wall comes down. 1,200 stadia is 1,500 miles. So 1,500 miles long, wide, high, so it goes up to where satellites orbit. Now, Probably not literal, but notice it's a perfect cube. Where else do we find a perfect cube in the Bible? It's in the description of the Holy of Holies in the temple in Israel. In other words, the city is now the Holy of Holies, which means we are the Holy of Holies. God in us us in him, the most intimate fellowship possible with the most glorious person in the universe. There is no temple in the city, verse 22, because there is no need. God is there. Not even the sun and moon are necessary because God's glory is there, shining brighter than any star. What this is, and we see it most clearly in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, this is paradise regained. Only it's not merely a garden for two people. It's a city now made up of numerous and diverse people from every tribe and language and people and nation. But there is a garden in the city. There'll be a river. There was a river in Eden. This river in this city is a river of delights. It's a river of grace that flows directly from the throne of God. Eternal streams of constant blessing. Which says to me that the new earth will be filled with ever-deepening delight and grace and blessings in Christ. I mean, it's a river. You can get into a river that flows down the street and splash around. And you can drink 
and drink and drink until you can't possibly take in any more delight, any more blessing, and still gallons of gallons of grace and blessing are flowing past and more just keeps coming. We will never exhaust this river. And there's the tree of life. That was in the garden, but just one. Now it's a grove made up of the tree of life. And we're free to eat a new kind of fruit each month. God not only provides, but he makes it interesting and delicious. Best of all, verse 4, we will see his face and his name will be on our foreheads. The best thing, some of you are going to experience this. You're going to go home. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The best thing about going home after I've been traveling is looking into the face of my wife and my kids. There's nothing better about getting home. One day, we will go home and we will look upon the face that we only see now by faith. Our highest joy and our deepest delight will be when we look into the eyes of the Lamb on the throne and see God's glory shine. It will be the brightest and most beautiful face we have ever seen or will ever see. Every beauty we've ever beheld in our entire life, all wrapped up together and experienced at the same time, would still be a faint shadow compared to the beauty we will see in the face of Jesus. And when we look at his face, we will know him. His name will be on our foreheads. That is, we will finally have direct knowledge of God. We'll see him clearly in the light of his glory. No filter of sin, no misperception, no misunderstanding, just perfect knowledge. And we'll never stop getting to know him because he is like an ocean with no bottom. The new heaven, the new... The earth, the new earth, heaven on earth, is it's not merely a place with all the pleasures the world has to offer. It's so much more. It is the place where all the best and purest pleasures cannot compare to the pleasure of God's presence and glory. I love Psalm 1611. You probably do too. In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. I love that phrase. You ever just stop and think about that phrase? Fullness of joy, ultimate delight, spiritual bliss, and it's only found in God's presence. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, let me wrap it up here by asking, how can we have the biblical hope, and biblical hope is assurance, that the church's future is our future. How do we get this future? Or let me ask it this way. Who gets this future? Is it the courageous, the moral, the bold? No. But we have an answer at the end of verse 6. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To get this future and drink forever and ever and ever from the river of the water of life, all we have to do is be thirsty. We just need to be empty and in need of grace. And we can have grace. 
We can have the water of life for free. The only price is to drink at this fountain. And to drink is to trust in the lamb who was slain and rose again to bring us to God and to bring the church into her glorious future. And to, to be satisfied with that water, I mean, it's hot in Texas. And when I get that, uh, when I get this water bottle in a little while and I drink that cool, refreshing water, that, when we drink at the fountain of life and go, ah, that ah is worship. What you do Sunday after Sunday, which has already been said in this conference, can seem so mundane, so routine, is anything but. You, lead worshipers, get the privilege of pointing people to the fountain of life week after week and leading us in our corporate, satisfied, ah. Chapter 22 says... Verse 3, in the age to come, his servants will worship him. <laughs> Which just means they'll drink and be satisfied forever. So what you do in your churches prepares your church for what they will do forever. Amen. Su- Sunday is like a, a, a dress rehearsal. Well, it's a rehearsal, not dress rehearsal. We're going to be dressed better. It's a rehearsal for life on the new earth. You lead people in performing the highest moral act in the universe, the very reason we were created to worship God. Now, I have nothing to teach you about the ins and outs of leading. You've been well taught this week by a host of gifted folks. I just want you all to leave here today with a fresh sense of the weight of the privilege and honor And yes, responsibility of what God has called you to do. It's amazing. You're preparing the church for her future. Thank you. Let's pray. Well, Father, will you do now what I cannot do and just drive these truths home? Empower these promises of of what your future holds for your church to be like a to be like a tow rope that just pulls us forward through all that life throws at us. So grant the grace to tighten our grip on these promises and pull us to our reward. Thanks for these brothers and sisters and the way they serve their churches. Fill them afresh right now with your Holy Spirit and with a sense of honor and privilege, your call to them to serve their local church. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Rick Gamash given at the 2018 Worship God Conference held in Frisco, Texas. For more information on the conference, please visit worshipgodconference.com.